Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. Quay, I'm Glenn Wheeler. Today, by the authors of an important new book, Salmon Wars, The Dark Underbelly of Our Favorite Fish. And we welcome Douglas France and Catherine Collins. Hello, Doug and Catherine. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, So the the focus of your book is, uh, I guess, the dark underbelly in the title is sea-based aquaculture, fish farms. Uh, something we've uh, talked a lot about here on, on Mi'kmaq Matters, and, and you also deals with some alternatives to sea-based uh, aquaculture. And um, <clears throat> for our listeners, um, Doug and Catherine, you, you're alumni of uh, some big uh, uh, American uh, daily newspapers, the LA Times, New York Times, Chicago Tribune. Uh, but Catherine, I understand you, uh, your family has had a um, uh, property on the south shore of Nova Scotia, Mi'kma'ki, uh, where you both are right now. Uh, so tell us about that. I guess uh, you've been on those shores uh, for many years uh, with the family. I was born in Cape Breton. Oh. Yes, very proud of that. But we uh, returned to Nova Scotia a few years ago when, when we sort of started sliding into retirement. Uh, I see. So we there, it may seem like an odd topic for us, aquaculture, because neither one of us is an angler and we aren't marine biologists um, and we aren't even environmental activists, but although we care about all these things, we are simply, we think like our readers, people who care about eating in a healthy manner and also eating in a sustainable and fair manner. But that said, we do have some, or I have some connections to the topic because my father was, in fact, an avid fly fisherman, the way some people like golf, he liked to fly fish. And um, as we, uh, growing up, all our special family meals were wild-caught Atlantic salmon. Mm. Kids have never known the pleasure. And then when my parents retired and moved back to Nova Scotia, their favorite place on earth, they were very excited to see a small fish farm go in in the cove around the corner. And dad thought at the time, great, this is a way that we'll be able to protect the wild salmon and they'll come back. And what he found was the opposite. The seabed died and it had an effect on the surrounding uh, marine life very quickly. I can give you this this expanded part of this. And so, Glenn, we had that in our in the back of our minds from the early 90s that that this this single salmon farm caused some damage to the environment. And so after we moved, Catherine and I moved uh, back to Nova Scotia permanently, um, we attended a meeting in January 2020, not far from our house in Mahone Bay, where about 400 people in the, from the community turned out to hear about plans by two multinational salmon farmers to bring more than 20 new salmon farms to the coastline of Nova Scotia. And we were alarmed a little bit going in, 
we were alarmed a lot coming out. And so we did what we do, which is investigate and then write stories about it. And that's sort of how this book began. And, and we really wrote the book, as, as Catherine had said, to share the knowledge we've gained about how to eat responsibly, how to eat sustainably, and how to be good stewards of the land, including the unceded territory on which in which we now work. Mm. Now, one of the uh, one of the contributions of the book is to put aquaculture in a global context. Uh, we in Newfoundland, you in Nova Scotia, we know firsthand about aquaculture. We see the results uh, in the water. Um, but in terms of uh, both in terms of corporate structure um, and in terms of impact, uh, if we think about the even the impact on the uh, coastal villages in Africa, where uh, a lot of uh, these so-called uh, what are known as trash fish by the industry, which which are actually very important fish, both uh, environmentally and for for people, you know, the anchovies and the um, the mackerel, etc. So uh Tell us a bit more about how how to think of aquaculture in a sort of global context. Well, it, it, you need to know what a, a fish farm, what a, an open net fish farm is to begin with. Imagine a, a floating feedlock that is bigger than a football field and anchored to the ocean floor by, by long cables. They're often in fragile coves and lo- often located on wild salmon migration routes. Each farm will have 10 or 12 pens. Each pen will hold as many as 100 fish. So the farm, 100,000 fish, sorry. (laughs) So a single farm can hold a million fish all crammed in together. And they they produce enough excrement and excess feed and waste that it equals the amount produced by a small t- a city of, let's say, 65,000 people. And the difference is that a city will treat its waste and a salmon farm does not. It simply dumps it into the public space, the ocean. And uh, we're left as the a, as a people living on the coastline and the rest of society to, to deal with that mess. Mm. So what we've seen over the last 20 to 30 years is these open net salmon farms spread along coastlines all over the world. And it's become a $20 billion global industry controlled by a handful of multinational farm uh, companies. And they've been able to turn what was once an iconic Keystone fish reserved for special occasions in most families into a cheap everyday commodity. And along the way, they've damaged the environment, they've damaged wild salmon, and they've caused some potential risks to our health. One, one thing that I was not uh, as aware of until I read your book is the, the use of chemicals to deal with sea lice, which of course are, are a main uh, uh, issue in, uh, in aquaculture. The use of chemicals to deal with those sea lice and the effect of those chemicals on lobster, which of course are a big ticket economic item for many fishermen in Atlantic Canada. Uh, tell, us, tell us about that, the use of chemicals. Yeah, the sea lice are these tiny, they're, they're the size of your little fingernail, um, and they're parasites, and they occur in the wild, and that's fine because there are very few of them. Because of the concentration of salmon in these cages, 
they become petri dishes for parasites and particularly for sea lice, which can eat the faces and fins and heads off of salmon and kill them. And so the salmon farmers have been been engaged in chemical warfare against these parasites for a couple of decades now. And the measures to which they've resorted have been more extreme. The most interesting and telling example we found, Glenn, was about 10 years ago in New Brunswick in the Bay of Fundy, where a Cook Aquaculture, which is one of the major players in this business based in New Brunswick, used a, ba- a banned substance called cipermethrin, which is a neurotoxin, and they applied it at 15 of their farms to fight a sea lice infestation. And what the Environment Canada found when they investigated after complaints from lobster farmers was that this cipermethrin had killed lobsters by the thousands, had killed other fish around these pens. And that's one of the, one of the clearest examples of the damage that, that these salmon farms can cause to other marine life. In that case, um, Kelly Cove salmon, one of the subsidiaries of Cook Aquaculture, ultimately pleaded guilty to um, illegal use of this banned um, pesticide and paid a five hundred thousand dollar fine, which is kind of walking around money for a company as big as Cook. Mm. Now let's let's talk about the resistance to uh, to sea based aquaculture, and <clears throat> we've seen on the Pacific coast of Canada and the United States, the people rising up against um, against sea uh, based aquaculture uh, in Washington State uh, in British Columbia, and you. You compare the uh, response on the Pacific coast and on the Atlantic coast and the, shall we say, the more muted opposition on the Atlantic coast. And you explain this by the different economies and the different people who live close to the water in uh, Washington state, which, of course, is home to tech, aerospace, uh, very successful economies, unlike uh, Atlantic Canada. So when these rich people... Uh, with um, uh, multi-million dollar estates on the water, see fish farms coming. Uh, they do not want. Uh, they do not want this, and have the the means to uh, to resist. And the Atlantic coast is uh, is a different situation. So it's almost like a um, a kind of a class based uh, uh, component to the response to uh, to sea based aquaculture. Well, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with it as being a class-based response, really. What, what we were talking about in Washington State, where in 20, 2018, they banned all open-net salmon farms after a colossal accident at one of them in Puget Sound. But what that was based on was, the, there certainly are some people who didn't like their views spoiled, but what that was based on was the danger to Pacific salmon from these alien Atlantic salmon that escaped. I think there were substantial environmental and scientific concerns there. But also in Washington state and up the coast in BC around Vancouver, you have a lot more opportunities for jobs, frankly. as When you live in a remote area of Newfoundland, all of Newfoundland is pretty remote, of, of Newfoundland or, or New Brunswick or Nova Scotia, there are fewer job opportunities. And so people tend to be more accepting of businesses that can damage the environment. And particularly government officials seem to embrace 
these businesses because the government officials tend to put jobs and economics ahead of protecting the environment. Yes. It's always they're looking at the problem there with them rather than looking for uh, what the problem might be in, in 10 or 20 years. It's very immediate response. I wonder if another difference in the response on the Pacific coast and the Atlantic coast is the role of, uh, of first nations in, uh, of course, in, uh, in BC uh, with the uh, getting uh, sea-based aquaculture out of the discovery islands region, the first nations have been front and center in that opposition on the Atlantic coast uh, in on the South coast of Newfoundland, you know, big egg first nation is a commercial uh, partner in the aquaculture industry. So I wonder if that's also a factor, First Nations and their their angle. Yes, I, I agree with you completely. Uh, it's the First Nations have been absolutely their their influence out west has been enormously important and they have driven this this debate and the reaction of the government by their own support of the environmental standards and the health concerns and their economy. Um, and you look at um, when the fisheries minister, Burnett Jordan, announced in 2020 that the federal government would shut down the B.C. salmon farms in two years and the federal government said they'd phase them out by 2025. Newfoundland's own fisheries minister at the time, Jerry Byrne, put up his hand and said, extended an invitation to those very same companies to come to Newfoundland and set up shop there. This was just months after Newfoundland had experienced in late 2019 the world's worst salmon die-off when they lost 2.7 million fish at a Maui facility. And when the CBC covered this event with absolutely gruesome images of of ships pumping this pink flesh overboard, which coated the the coastline for miles, um, when that happened, Byrne accused the CBC of propaganda and compared the, the situation to the seal harvest, camp, you know, the anti-seal harvesting campaign from what, 10, 15 years ago. Yes. It's a different situation. Yes. Yes. Uh, you, uh, you spent some time on the south coast of Newfoundland. I understand from the book, uh, we have you uh, provide some very graphic information from a diver, uh, Joaquin Drew, if I recall his name correctly, who went down there and, um, and, and you described to us what what he saw. Um, tell us tell us about your trip to the South Coast. And I wonder if you if you uh, tried to speak with or or did speak with uh, Chief Mazel Joe of the uh, Meobigag First Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't we didn't speak with Chief Joe. We spoke with some other people from the Con River Band. Um, but Joaquin Drew is a fascinating character. Um, he's he's um, from the Con River Band. He dropped out of high school, and then he moved. He went to Prince Edward Island to get his GED, and because he wanted to be a professional diver, and so he went there. He got his GED. He became literate, and he built his own business, providing diving services to these salmon farms that were popping up along the south coast of Newfoundland. And what he saw down there was for him. You know, it was a business, but it became something that that was that was sad and, and, and something that that bothers him still to this day from when we talked to him about it about a year ago in Stevensville, if I remember right, um, you know, because he saw the destruction of the marine life around there. He described one time that he and two of his other divers went into one of the cages 
where predators had broken through the netting to get at the salmon. And this happens uh, fairly commonly, but he went in, they went in there and they used homemade spears out of metal to kill 13 blue sharks. And they dragged these sharks out of the cage and they dumped them to the ocean. He described another incident in which he had to go down bottom of one of these huge nets containing tens of thousands of salmon, most of whom, most of them were dead, and they just cut the bottom and let them go to the ocean floor, where they decompose and they take up, they soak up all the oxygen and other, other, other nutrients for the fish around there, you know, so his, his story was really kind of a sad one, but I got to say that we fell in love with Newfoundland on our two trips there with with the with the landscape and and more importantly with the people we met there. Yeah, you you really uh, you got around. You were even in uh, in Galtus, which is uh, uh, a place that not many people get to because you have to take the ferry and uh, and uh, uh, re- regarding um, uh, Con River, um, Chief uh, Chief Joe asked question whether. Uh, fish farms are are really if there's firm evidence uh, about a, a relationship between fish farms and the uh, decline of wild Atlantic salmon he says well you know it could be the seals it could be this it could be that <clears throat> in your view after your research after talking to so many experts do you think there's any doubt that there is a relationship between sea-based aquaculture and the decline of wild Atlantic salmon a recent survey of the rivers, the salmon rivers in Newfoundland, showed that I think it's 17 of the 18 major salmon rivers had um, wild, had Atlantic salmon that had it, it had come from farms. So you, it's already affecting the the salmon rivers there. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, it's settled science. I mean, Chief, with all due respect to Chief Joe and the, and the other naysayers, it's settled science that these ocean-based salmon farms spread disease and parasites <laughs> to wild salmon. And they're particularly dangerous to wild salmon when they're in their migratory stage. The smolts are coming out of the river and heading to the salt water of the ocean, and they pass these cages at the same time, the sea lice in these cages, these parasites, are breeding. And so they create plumes of sea lice that attach to these smolts, which have very thin skin at that point and are very vulnerable. So, I mean, it, 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 there's just no scientist who would argue that the salmon farms don't damage wild salmon. And the Atlantic Salmon Federation, which has a, a very important office in, up in Corner Brook, run by a guy named Don Ivany, who's been at this for 30 years. I mean, they're convinced. And they'll provide Chief Joe with all the proof he needs, I think, to, to uh, uh, get, his, get his head straight around this issue. And there's another important point about the Newfoundland salmon farms the die-offs are each year now in excess of 40 or close to 50%, uh, not die-offs, the mortality rate, sorry. That's not a sustainable uh, business model to be losing half, nearly half of your product every year. I mean, look at the chicken industry, the industrial chickens and the industrial cows. They don't tolerate that sort of loss. Mm. You mentioned uh, uh, Moe and the uh the uh, largest uh, salmon die-off in, uh, in, in the world. Uh, 
And you also mentioned Thor Mowinkle, if I pronounce his name correctly, and uh, after whom the Moe name uh, is taken, um, M-O-W-I are the first letters of his name. And he was the founder of what is now Moe, but he has become very disenchanted with sea-based aquaculture and has expressed his regret at what the company has become and its role in sea-based aquaculture. Um, do you think that it's possible uh, that uh, there might develop uh, in the world a kind of movement against sea-based aquaculture, the way there's been on other uh, political issues on climate change generally? Um, where, do you, where do you see uh, public opinion going uh, on the, this very serious issue of sea-based aquaculture? Well, there, there are two parts to that question. First, let's deal with the consumers first. I do think that the, there is new evidence showing that consumers are very interested in this business and in what they eat and eating in a, in a sustainable manner. The Environmental Defense Fund did a recent poll, I think it was last year, of 800 Americans uh, that showed that, that confirmed this. It said that 69% of those people surveyed were concerned about the origin of their seafood. 73% said they would eat more seafood if consumer protections were strengthened, and 71% said they'd eat more seafood if they were sure that the environmental standards for fish farms were raised. And then the frustrating thing, I think, for many people is that there is an answer, which is land-based salmon farming, but it's, it's just coming online, and it seems like it'll never be in your marketplace if, you're, if you love salmon and you want to buy land-based salmon. So I was looking this week into the numbers of RAS, the recirculating aquaculture systems, and, and the numbers are growing. Right now, there are about 100 projects worldwide coming online as we speak. And so it's coming. Yeah, it's a disruptive technology in a sense that, that could upend this market. Right now, Glenn, 90% of the salmon eaten in Canada and the United States comes from open net salmon farms around the world, 90%. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing now is these land-based farms, which raise salmon in tanks that are closed containment systems. They don't get the viruses and the parasites in, so they don't have to use chemicals. Their fish never touch the ocean, so they're not spreading diseases or interbreeding with wild salmon. They're coming online, as Kathy said, in various places. We're fortunate here in Nova Scotia to have two successful land-based operations, um, Sustainable Blue and Cape Door. Out, out west in B.C., Kutera is run by First Nations, and they've been very successful yeah. over a number of years. And in the coming years, probably in the next six to ten years, that's going to be a much bigger part of the market. So there's a chance to reverse this damage to the oceans and the damage to the, to the wild salmon and the damage to the farm salmon. I mean, farm salmon are sentient creatures. They feel pain. They struggle. They understand. And so when you look at Newfoundland, in last year in Newfoundland, 4.2 million salmon were harvested from salmon cages and off the coast. 4 million salmon died. So, you know, I mean, look, it's not sustainable in any way, and it damages these wonderful, marvelous creatures. Mm. Well, it's great to end on a note of optimism that there is an alternative that uh, that might um, that might provide uh, an alternative. So, uh, so Doug and and Catherine, thanks very much for the book. Thanks for being on the program, and um, 
And um, I suppose, are, are you, will you be on tour uh, with the book or what are your plans now that the book is out? We're doing a number of radio shows similar to, similar to yours. We're very happy with that. We we had an op-ed essay in the Globe and Mail um, on Saturday, this past Saturday, July, I don't know, 11th, whatever it was. Um, and so, um, you know, we're, we're doing some of that. Our publicists tell us that, that, that book tours are kind of a relic of the past. We've got ah, them today. <laughs> I see. Great. Uh, Douglas Franz and Catherine Collins, authors of the, uh, the new book, Salem Wars, The Dark Underbelly of Our Favorite Fish, published by Henry Holden Company. And that's it for the program. Alison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Emson Okada.